Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive, taking you inside the news with the people who make and shape it. I am Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Hello, Joe. Hi, Emily. How are you today? I'm hanging in there, but I'm enlivened knowing that you have a fantastic interview coming up this week. Tell me everything. Yeah. Speaking of um, people who are in the middle of the news and who are just hanging in there, Okay, we today we have Matthew Chance, senior correspondent of international news for CNN, who has until like just two or three days ago been at the front lines of uh, the Ukraine invasion by Russia, uh, has been reporting there since January from the time that uh, Russian forces were lining up at the border to the moment that missiles started raining down on Kiev and uh, has been through it through thick and thin and is going to tell us what he saw, uh, what has happened there and what he thinks will happen. And this is a guy who not only has been uh, right at ground zero of this invasion, but has himself interviewed Vladimir Putin over the years, has had an incredible career. Yeah. Covering everything that's been going on in Europe, in the Middle East, uh, in Asia, and really has some perspective on Putin the man, on the war as it has been happening, and really can take you down to the human level of what he's seen. And that's what he's going to be talking about today. You know, the the past few weeks as you and I have been talking to incredibly smart, experienced, knowledgeable people on this, I feel like we've gotten a really rounded perspective of all the things or some of the things that we could care about. But we have yet to talk to someone who's been on the ground there right now. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing his perspective, not only someone who was experiencing it, but someone who's such an expert on it and mm-hmm. a member of the media. And I think we're, we're starting to see this week in particular, how this is affecting reporters and colleagues of his on the ground. We saw uh, the reporter Fox News and, and others who have died, yeah. uh, many who have fled both Ukraine and now Russia. Our editor, Miriam, who was our guest last week, was saying that she knew about a hundred people in Russia. And now she knows about three. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that that's a really stunning statistic. And she mentioned that to us in our, our weekly news meeting this week, a few days ago, and it stuck with me. Uh, I've been thinking about it a lot since then. And and what that means for our ability to get information and our ability to actually know what's happening on the ground and to take a temperature of sentiment, both in Ukraine, but, but also in Russia. And when scary shit like this happens... Of course, people have to leave, but it really hampers our ability as people who aren't there to understand what's happening and what things feel like on a ground level. So the fact that we have this perspective this week is such a gift, and I'm so looking forward to hearing about it. Yeah. Well, to your point, uh, Matthew Chance, who's been in uh, Moscow for eight years in the CNN Bureau, uh, you know, he's not even sure he's going to be 
able to go back and be a reporter there. And he talks about mm. that on the podcast. And, you know, but he is going to try to go back into Ukraine to continue his reporting. He's taking a, a short break. He's in London. The things he's experienced and seen have uh, obviously exhausted him, and he's kind of recharging before he tries to go back in. But he also talks, as you're going to see, about some of these correspondents who've been killed and the dangers and the risks that he knows about, obviously, from experience, and he's going to talk about that. Um, you know, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense said earlier this week about those killings of, uh, you know, Fox News cameramen and a, uh, a local fixer that they had there, um, you know, truth is the target. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Russian government and this war, the truth is also uh, under siege. And people like Matthew Chase are there trying to, you know, separate truth from fiction. And, um, you know, we've been in an era where, you know, we joke about fake news, but now more than ever, it's life and death. Before we go, wait, I have one thing I want to add. This is a, uh, it's a, it's a pivot. Pivot away. But I'm going to pivot very, very quickly. And it's just because, because this is such a heavy time. I think obviously what's happening in Ukraine is weighing on all of us. And this interview is going to give us a new perspective and uh, COVID is still around. Um, so I have a little bit of a lighthearted thing that I have to bring to you. Uh, my my very soon-to-be husband, Lee Eisenberg, has a show coming out this week on Apple TV+, and it is so fucking fun and so good. I am obviously incredibly biased, but it is truly the best thing I've seen in a really, really long time. It's called We Crash. It's on Apple TV+. It is the story of the rise and fall of WeWork and primarily the couple who founded the company and their love story. And they're played by Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway and premiered this weekend. It is so fun and it's such a great mind vacation. I know that other Vanity Fair podcasts are doing a whole series on on these shows and the and the lot of the scammer shows that have come out this spring. So you'll hear actually you'll hear Lee as a guest on those podcasts next week. But listen to this interview and then go watch the show as a little bit of a solve for you guys. So that's my plug before we get into this very important interview. Do it. All right, let's get into it now. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. Matthew, Chance, welcome to Inside the Hive. Thanks for coming here under uh, under present circumstances. No, it's, uh, it's, it's great to be here, and thank you very much for inviting me. There's so much we have to talk about here. I mean, you just... I believe what last Friday or Saturday returned to London from Ukraine. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. So I'd spent the last couple of months basically in Ukraine yeah. from well before the hostilities started when we were talking about that buildup of forces. And I was there right throughout the, the start of the bombing campaign, right through the first three weeks, I think, of, of, of the conflict. And then, yeah, uh, you know, at, at the end of that period, I decided it was time to sort of take an opportunity to ro- rotate out on a temporary basis. And of course, I expect to be going back in when the opportunity for that arises. Well, I can only imagine that level of intensity and then sustaining that then being on air, trying to be cogent and uh, you know keep your mental health in order at the same time because of the things you've been witnessing. I, I, I struggle with being cogent most of the time, actually. Again, you're right. It is because it is, it's very tiring. And, and you appear on these primetime US shows, for instance, which in Ukraine are in the middle of the night. And so that in itself is just yeah. challenging through lack of sleep. And then, of course, when you in the daytime, you have to, you know, cope with the the stressful, you know, difficult challenge of covering a conflict like like the one we've been witnessing in, in Ukraine, um, which is which is you know, it's yeah, it's 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 draining emotionally and physically, which is why it's so important to. You know, and it's dangerous as well, of course, which is why it's so important to when you are feeling that you're not functioning at your best, it's so important to be honest about that and, you know, to step back from that story and to make arrangements to to get some rest or to rotate out. Because because if you don't, um, if you're not honest about that, then, of course, you know, your judgment can fail. You can make mistakes. And, you know, generally you start sort of spiraling into a, you know, you know, something that you don't, where you don't want to go. And so, you know, I, I try to be mature about it. I've covered a, a couple of conflicts like this. Um, and, um, and so that was the decision I took. And we have seen so much, even in the last week, the, the risks and the emotional weight of this. And your job is basically to kind of connect with what's going on, observe for us and deliver what is really kind of searing material and incredibly scary and depressing and tragic stuff. Um, let me just ask you this right off the bat. What were your last impressions of Kiev when you left a few days ago? What was the what was your sort of last impression of the conflict and where things stood? Well, I guess it's it's the uncertainty of what happens next. I mean, Kiev has been cleared out as a city. I mean, there are, there's virtually nobody there. You know, you know, the, the streets are empty. The security forces on every street corner. You know, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a hollowed out city, and, and that contrasts very starkly with the kind of city that I know, which is very buzzy, very happy. I like going to Kiev normally; it's great, um, and it's 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 radically transformed. When it comes to the story, you know, it's it's this it's this concern which I've had from the outset, which is where does this end? How does it does it escalate, sort of endlessly, or will the two sides come together and you know will you know some sort of peace peace agreement be? be hammered out. I mean, I certainly hope that happens soon because people are really, really suffering. I'm not talking about the journalists, I'm talking about the people who, yeah. are, who are under that gunfire. I mean, it's horrific. Yeah, yeah. And did you find yourself 
I mean, as a reporter, you get to know people, and I'm sure you befriended some people and maybe already had friends there. But uh, what were you seeing? What was your experience of what the people were going through as you left? The people that are still there who haven't left, why are they there and how are they living? Well, I mean, I've, I've been covering Kiev for you know a lot of years, maybe 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 20 years on and off, right? I mean, particularly in the past couple of years when it's been such an important country in terms of the American political situation. You know, there was the whole... You know, quid pro quo, Trump scandal thing. Uh, and also just politically, I mean, I, I live in Moscow normally, right? And so you know, Ukraine has, is politically interesting. It's been a, an important part of the story that I covered generally. And so I've got a lot of friends there and I've got a lot of contacts there. Um, a lot of them are still there because, you know, I know, I know lots of regular Ukrainians and, and, and you know, people like that. A lot of the people that I, I, who are my contacts are government officials or they're kind of in, in positions of authority in some way. Um, and a lot of them have just packed up, you know, you know, stopped doing their day job and picked up a gun and put on a uniform, which is astonishing. Yeah. So you've got a lot of people in Kiev who are there because they want to fight. You've also got some people who are too old or too sick to leave as well, which is really, really sad. And so you, you see a bit of that as well. Or feel that they just want to tough it out. You know, the, the, there's that kind of attitude as well. But if I'm honest, the, the majority of the people I know who are still in Kiev are people who are sort of mid-ranking officials who have decided that they are going to put on a uniform and defend their city. And, and, and that's, that's been one of the features, one of the characteristics of this, of this invasion by Russia. They thought this country was going to topple. They thought the armed forces were going to crumble at the slightest push. And of course, what happened is that everybody picked up a gun. The army are, are sort of battle-hardened because of their experience in the, in the, in the east of the country fighting Russian-backed rebels. But you've even got, you know, kind of residents in apartment blocks, like old women, making petrol bombs and giving them to the soldiers to throw at Russian tanks. And so there's been this incredible, you know, hardening of people's attitudes towards defending their country. It's been really quite, it's quite remarkable, and quite moving to witness. You probably better than most, having been based in Moscow and done the travel that you have, were familiar with like Ukraine and the kind of character of the country. Did it surprise you that this was the reaction, the taking up of an arm of arms, the instant rebellion? Could you have predicted that? I mean, I, 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 uh, I could have, but I mean, I saw the opinion polls before the um, before the invasion took place, and you know, I think probably the Kremlin did as well. You know, a lot of people wouldn't have thought that they would have been the kind of person to have taken up a weapon and fought a Russian tank as it as it rolled into the country. And I think a lot of soundings that the, the Kremlin would have taken would have reached the same conclusion. And I actually spoke to some guy. Actually, he was a uh, he was an accountant at a at a firm in um, in Kiev, and he said it was an international firm in, in Kiev. And he'd cast away his suit, and he'd taken up military fatigues, and he'd got a Kalashnikov AK forty seven rifle that he'd been given by the government. And he was like on a street corner in a in a little little area of Kiev called Obolon. And he was fighting Russian kind of special forces as they as they attacked him. And he literally said to me, look, he said, two days ago, and this was like right after the invasion, two days ago, I was never going to defend my country. I'm just not brave enough. But something changed in the minds of Ukrainians when those tanks came rolling over the border. And that's not even the Ukrainian speakers. That's even amongst the Russian speakers. Because remember, Ukraine has always been divided. It's been part of its problem. It's like 50-50 Ukrainian speaking, Russian speaking. You know, it's been, it's been the source of instability in the country for like since independence. And so they've always been divided about whether should they be NATO or should they be closer to Russia, that kind of thing. 
even even in the Russian speaking areas, the cities like Kharkiv, the second biggest city, which is like totally Russian speaking, and which you know is right on the border with Russia. You know, places like Mariupol, which is you know just just again you know on the Sea of Azov, close to close to Russian territory, and has now been taken over by the Russians or has been hit by the Russians. You're not seeing anybody in these places now, hardly anybody at all, that voice pro-Russian sympathies or pro-Russian views. I think one of the things that the Russian invasion has achieved is forging a much stronger sense of national identity in, in Ukraine. And yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, I've been wrong before, believe me. But but you know, I, I feel that that's what we're going to be seeing in Ukraine when we get to the end of this. Yeah. Let's go back for a minute. You were in Moscow before the buildup and before you arrived to the buildup, and that's where you were more or less stationed for CNN. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, look, I've been based in Moscow for CNN for the past, I want to say, eight years. Um, but before that, I was in London for a bit, and then and I did a five-year stint for CNN in Moscow before that as well. So I spent much of my professional life based out of Moscow. And so I've, you know, just to give you a quick, quick you know, recount. You know, I, I, I was on the back of a Russian armored personnel carrier in the year 2000 when we were driven into Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, after the Russian forces took it. They took me in in the first wave of journalists that, that they took. And I witnessed the, of course, a few years later, the, the Georgia conflict in 2008. Um, I went to Syria with the Russians. I was in eastern Ukraine with both the Russians and the Russian-backed rebels and the, and the Ukrainian forces. And so I've had this sort of front row seat when it comes to witnessing Putin's wars, as I've come to call them. And you see this progression of Putin testing the waters, the Kremlin testing the waters, coming a bit bit more into confrontation with the West, but then pulling back. You saw it in Grozny, you saw it in Georgia, you saw it in Syria, him sort of being increasingly adventurous in his in his militaristic overseas escapades. And and of course this is the this is the climax of that. He's really full on in full confrontation with with the West, and actually, it's been really remarkable to see what the response of the West has been. They, they at this point seem incredibly united in their opposition to that. Finally, yeah. Well, and you've also uh, yourself interviewed Putin, right? Yeah, I mean, I've met him a few times actually, and I've, I've asked him questions at press conferences, which doesn't sound much, but actually, it's quite a, it's quite a, an achievement or a feat of logistics to get yourself in a position where you can ask a question of Vladimir Putin at a press conference, because it's not like a given, you're going to get it. Right. Um, but yeah, I've sat down with him with a, you know, in, in a one-on-one interview as well. Back in 2008, it was just after the Georgia war. And it's interesting, when I look back at that footage, he spoke to me in English, not during the interview, but in the sort of setup afterwards. We did a little walk around the grounds of his administration building in, in Sochi in southern Russia. And he spoke to me in English. And I you know, and I, I asked him in English, I said, look, you know, and it's on, it's on, you can see this video on, on CNN, if you look it up, I said to him, do you think, I said, do you think this is the end of the post-Cold War settlement? I said to him, I can't remember what I said, something like that. And he was like, no, I, I hope it's not the end of that era of, of cooperation between Russia and the West. And, and so back in 2008, then, even after the Georgia war, he'd sampled, put his toes in the water of confrontation with the West he backed off and he said he hoped that it wasn't going to be the end of cooperation between Russia and the West. But I mean, th- those views clearly changed quite considerably after that. And there are various reasons for that. But yeah, I mean, look, and one on one, he is, uh, he's a very, you know, kind of, um, uh, what's the word when you've got a massive personality, that word. Yes. Uh, he's, he, 
yeah, he's got a huge personality. It's quite intimidating to sit across from him, even though he's not the, you know, the most physically, he hasn't got a very physically commanding presence. He's quite short, but he, he, he dominates the room. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's a tough interview because he doesn't like being interrupted. I can tell you, I tried. Yeah, I'll bet. And, and, you know, something seems to have changed, uh, like you said, and it seems that it changed with him either his calculation or some change in his personality. A lot of people have speculated about his isolation, uh, whether he became more influenced by his lieutenants who, you know, are kind of, they're feeding off this kind of historical grievance. But let me ask you this, in Moscow, among the conversations you're having with other journalists, Russians themselves, were there any signs that something was going to happen? I mean, look, in retrospect, the signs were all there. I mean, he, he gathered a hundred and whatever it was, thousand troops on the on the border, you know, and so that's that's signposting what you're going to do pretty clearly, isn't it, in retrospect? Yeah. But I literally don't know anyone who thought that he was going to do this, to pull the trigger on this. And, and the reason for that, I, and I count myself amongst that, I mean, it was like a, a huge miscalculation on my part and on the part of everybody I know, every analyst. I mean, no one really thought this, right? And one of the reasons for that isn't just that, you know, the world-changing massive step that would be that could potentially lead to thermonuclear war. It's just that the strategy of rattling your saber and threatening to do this, was it seemed to be working. I mean, you know, I thought the idea that the Kremlin had, and of course the Kremlin is very opaque, so it's just a guessing game, right? I thought the idea was to rattle the tree diplomatically, see what compromises fall out, maybe get another summit with Biden. And, and you know, there was even talk about them redrawing the U- European security architecture, whatever that is, you know, but it was going to be in Russia's favor. You know, there was going to be all sorts of stuff and it was it was working. Plus, every time the Biden administration said, oh, he's going to, in- he's going to, he's going to invade on this date, and then he didn't do it, you know, he would then point, you know, all his officials would point to America and go, look, they're hysterical. And he would, they would use it as a way of putting a wedge in between America and Europe by saying, look, look at you Europeans. Why are you listening to the Americans? They're, they're crazy. They keep saying we're going to invade. We're not. I don't know why they think that. And it was working beautifully for him. He was a, he was a real, he was being absolutely, you know, I mean, like him or not, he was absolutely killing it in, at that point. So why he pulled the trigger on this invasion and launched this fiasco, I still don't really know why that is. I still don't understand what his objective is because he clearly can't win. He can't win it because how do you win? What's the win scenario? That you invade Ukraine? And then what? How do you hold it? You know, how do you hold it? I mean, there's a a guy with a javelin anti-tank missile in every window. I, I don't know how you, how what his plan is. I mean, I think, I think it was an Israeli general who, uh, who said that your only option well, you, you can't win a war like this. The only the only thing you can do is choose the extent of your humiliation, and, and I think that's what the Kremlin is. I've misquoted the Israeli general, obviously, but but you get the idea. It's like you you can't win it, but you can choose the extent of your humiliation. You can choose when to leave, and I think that's what the Kremlin must be doing now. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. 
I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I mean, you, and it's interesting and maybe ironic that former KGB agent who had, you know, was an adult during the time that, uh, or at least a, aware of the Afghanistan misadventure that Russia already had, would, uh, and, but, you know, um, the U.S. has made this mistake too. We did Vietnam and then we thought we we're going to do it something like that again and it'll come out different, right? And once again, a massive superpower is finding out its limitations when you hit the ground in a place you don't understand or know. Let's talk for a minute about your colleagues and people uh, who are in the job you're in. In the last yeah. week, we've lost three people. There's a, you know, uh, you're, you're kind of sort of analog over at Fox, uh, Benjamin Hall, seriously injured in a hospital right now. Uh, I saw you tweeted the, the other day that you had just had coffee with Pierre uh, Zakruski, the, the cameraman. Uh, like the day before um, this. And did you guys all know each other from being in the same kind of theater or did you know these people? Well, I mean, I know a lot of people at CNN had, had, were very close to Pierre and, you know, I, 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 I hardly knew him at all, except that I spent the last several weeks in the same hotel as him. You know, having breakfast with him every wow. morning, you know, and so we sort of like developed. And he's a very, he was a very friendly guy. You know, he kind of looks a bit like Albert Einstein, and everyone, all the waitresses were like, and all the waiters were like, oh, it's like Albert Einstein, you know. And yeah. so that's what they were all saying. And so we laughed about that a bit, and we we've had coffee a couple of times actually. And and he's just he was such a, you know, looks such a such a happy, jolly guy, and you know, joy to be around. And actually, Benjamin as well, you know. You know, he, he came and introduced himself to me just the other day, and he was like, "Oh, you know, it's great to meet you." You know, I'm based in you know, Washington, whatever, and we had a bit of a chat as well. And, it, and so, look, I mean, there's a real collegiate at, you know atmosphere when you're all in a sort of difficult situation like that conflict. You know, we're all in the same hotel, we're all facing the same challenges, and so it's deeply saddening when somebody uh, you know dies or gets injured in the ways that that the Fox crew, the Fox crew have. And it's really, really awful. And I'm so sorry that it's happened. Yeah. I mean, you, there must be a sort of uh, there, but for the grace of God, go I moment for a lot of you guys. Well, I mean, you know, we are all here, but for the grace of God, of course. And, you know, obviously it can happen to any of us, the best of us, and, and does happen to to the best of us. But, you know, look, I, I, we, and, you know, look and I want to say that at CNN, we, you know, we, we take as many precautions as we possibly can. And we do very, very serious risk assessments before we set out in a, in a vehicle, for instance, to, when we're in a situation like that. And sometimes it can be quite frustrating because you, you kind of want to go somewhere and, and the answer comes down, you, you can't do it for this, this, and this reason. Um, but, you know, those security measures are in place precisely because it is so dangerous and because things like this can happen. And even when you take those precautions... There's, a, there's an, an unpredictable element of covering a, a conflict, of course, of course you, can't, yeah. you can't cater for. And so even when you take every precaution that you can take, it's still super dangerous. But, you know, it's, you, you have to accept an element of risk if you're going to do this sort of job. I mean, you have to, because if you don't accept an element of risk, then you can't, you can't do it. And, and Pierre, yeah. Pierre knew that. He did know that of all people. 
Well, and there's a per- there must be a personality type, a personality profile of people that are willing to do this and want to do it and are able to keep their head in these kind of environments. Well, I, I, maybe. Maybe there is. I don't know. But I mean, for me personally, it's always been incredibly hard. You know, I, I've, I always sort of like I'm worried to death, you know, whenever I'm in a situation like that, and it makes me feel ill. And, and I'm terrified most of the time, you know, certainly in war zones with bullets flying around or artillery shells flying around. I'm not so bad in sort of riots. I'm fine with that, you know, but, um, but when, when the guns come out and the artillery shells start flying, then it's, it's just something kind of deeply frightening about it. I think the calculation I make those, I mean, I, I, I trust the security measures that we've got in place. Obviously, I make sure there's a strong editorial reason to do anything at all. I don't do anything unless there's a strong reason for it that I think is, you know, important to do. I don't just go out looking for trouble. And none of us do at CNN. In terms of the personality type, it's that it's that I just think you have to be you have to be able to confront your fears to do it. Not not have fear, but be able to confront them. That that's all. And and we can all do that if we try. Well, and these Ukrainians have proved it. Uh, the, just the story you told of the accountant. I mean, we're watching people in real time, and you've been witnessing and documenting them and bringing them into American TVs. This kind of moment in which uh, you find out what democracy is worth <laughs> and what is the value of it. In the you know, you're, we're soaking in it every day if we live in the West and we take it for granted. And then one, you know, the next day you can't take it for granted and then you find out what it's worth and you find out who you are. I mean, that's been one of the most energizing and kind of inspiring uh, things about watching Zelensky and watching the Ukrainians take up arms. And just to add to that, you know, you in the press, I'm thinking, you know, Macron of France was just saying, lamenting the deaths of these journalists, that, uh, you know, part of democracy is the freedom to inform, right? The freedom... Uh, to find out what the truth is. In fact, the Ukrainian Minister of Defense said this week that that truth is the target. And then we've seen literally in the case of some of these correspondents. I think that's what he was actually referring to. Um, When there was the troop buildup, to go back to that question, when was the moment when you knew that this had gone from we're sitting here not knowing what's going to happen to now we know it's on? Did you hear something, see something? Uh, what was the moment when you, where suddenly you're, you know this is real? I can tell you the precise moment. I was on television when it, when it happened because um, Putin gave that, that sort of strange rambling speech in which he talked about the nature of the Ukrainian state and what he didn't like about it. And at the end of it, he said, that's why I've ordered this special military operation. I think he said something like that. And we were all absolutely shocked. I was shocked that he had done that. But within minutes of him saying that, I mean, I can't remember the exact gap between when he stopped speaking and when the first missile struck, but it was minutes. And I was out there on the balcony of the, on the roof of the hotel, in fact, that we were staying at. And literally the missiles started coming in, you know, cruise missiles smacking into the outskirts of the city and they are loud and bone shaking, you know? And I think there was a moment which I think a few people have picked up on, but it was deeply terrifying for me is that I sort of, I was, I struggled to get my flat jacket on because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know they were going to, I thought they might, they could have bombed the hotel, right? I mean, they could have started carpet bombing the entire city at that point. I mean, I, we, nobody knew. And I was a bit discombobulated as well. I remember sort of being a bit kind of inarticulate on the air because not only was I 
experiencing this terrifying missile attack, which is not fun for anyone to, in, to, in, to witness. But also, as I was saying to you earlier, my entire calculation, there's not many journalists out there, certainly on, on the air right then, that, that know Russia as well as I do. I've spent much of my adult life there. My entire calculation about what Putin was going to do, I had to reassess in that moment. And I was confused about what was happening. Not confused, but I was like surprised about what was happening. Shocked. I was shocked. I was in shock and I was frightened because there was cruise missiles landing not far away from me. Um, and so that's why I'm all sort of, you know, kind of slightly, slightly kind of couldn't find my words a little bit. I'm not trying yeah. to make excuses for yeah, I mean, performance on. Uh, understandable. But it was a, it was a remarkable moment. And it's, and, it, and it's point is that it's that exact point that I realized that not only was I wrong, but that the, we were, we were at a pivotal moment in, world politics you know, the world had changed i mean it sounds stupid saying that right i hear myself but it, it, i feel i feel that everything changed at that point and we'll see whether whether that that is the case or not i suspect it is i just don't see how you know putin or russia rehabilitates itself from this even if it signs a peace deal tomorrow did you see zelensky's speech to the us congress today um i haven't i haven't seen it yet but um do you, do you have it in front of you i don't have it in front of me but he he, you know, he he made his appeal to the U.S. for a no-fly zone, which is kind of a no non-starter yep. uh, presently. Uh, but in lieu of that, asking for more, you know, surface-to-air missiles, more aid against, you know, the air bombings and yep. and uh, and missiles. And he also noted that, uh, you know, Biden, as the U.S. president, his responsibility and his power was to be a leader of peace. And he said that in English, which was uh, very powerful. And you had members of Congress from both parties, you know, literally in tears uh, watching him because it was so moving. And to your point about is this going to uh, re recalibrate the world order, this entire affair, I, I think it's happening in real time right in front of our eyes. And it goes back to what I was saying about people being reminded of what democracy is worth and what, you know, what the post-war and we're talking about post-World War II, global order was about, right, to, to kind of uh, prevent or mitigate just such a, a thing. You know, I think there's a silver lining out of this. It's hard to talk of silver linings with so many people dying. Yeah. I mean, the West has been revigorated as a concept. You know, the democratic West is back, which is just really, really good to, to see. Um, and, and also, yeah. you talked about Zelensky addressing the, the Congress. He addressed the British Parliament as well a couple of weeks back. Actually, I've lost all track of time. Maybe it's just been a couple of days ago. I don't know. Um, yeah. But, it, you know, it was equally inspiring. And, and he's just emerged as this, yeah, remember he was a comic actor before he was a, yeah, yeah. Before he sort of, you know, transformed into this political leader. He was quite, well, you know, he wasn't doing too well in the, in the popularity ratings either is when I last looked. But now he's, emerged as this kind of heroic kind of figure, national icon, which is, I mean, just really, again, really astonishing to to witness firsthand. Right. And another person you had interviewed in the past, and, you know, uh, as unpredictable as Putin turned out to be, the there was a certain unpredictability or maybe unforeseeability of Zelensky's yeah. rise to the occasion, right? I mean, you would, you would not have pegged him as this guy. No, who would have known? Who would have known that this guy who who played a president on television in a sitcom and then sort of turned that into a political party and sort of got elected sort of on a wing and a prayer kind of thing? You know, nobody took him seriously. Everyone thought he was a bit of a lightweight. I mean, why wouldn't you think that? 
I mean, he was a you know, he was on TV on a in a, in a sort of like I won't rate the comedy performance, but you know, and, and it's, but suddenly he's like you know this person that world leaders look up to for inspiration, which has been remarkable. And he hasn't left Kiev. He's in a bunker. He moves from place to place. He, well, he's out on the street as well. He's coming out and you know he's he's, he's really showing Ukrainians that they can. If not win this, then he's showing them that they can f- resist this, which is must be very inspiring. It is inspiring to watch. It must be even more inspiring if you're an, a Ukrainian watching your president defiantly standing up to the might of Russia in this way. Yeah. And then having the leaders of neighboring countries go into this war zone, you know, dangerous for everybody there uh, to show solidarity. It was incredibly powerful um, this week. But um how does one get out of Kiev, uh, considering I, I was just, you know, what we know of it is it seems to be surrounded. How do you get out? Oh, it's, not, it's not quite surrounded. It's nearly surrounded. You can still get out to the south, even the, but that might change. But it's interesting, those prime ministers that came in and met Zelensky, they came in on a train, you know, which was even more kind of, you know, uh, risky, I suppose, because, you know, if, you know train, train lines can be bombed. Well, roads can be bombed, I suppose. But... But yes, so you can, there are ways out, of course, there are lots of people flooding out. And I, and I took the route, route out, you know, a couple of days ago um, to the Polish border. But what was interesting is driving that 14 hours it took us to get to, get to the border. In, in the other direction, there were trucks coming in, you know, civilian trucks, supposedly. You know, God knows what they were taking in. But, you know, we were assuming that a lot of supplies, potentially military equipment as well, I expect it was, though I can't confirm it, of course, were being shipped in by the truckload in a constant procession into Kiev. I mean, that city is like wow. a, I mean, it must be like a fortress right now. It is like a fortress. It looks like a fortress. But I mean, God knows what's waiting for the Russian tanks if they decide to, to roll into the center of the town. The urban warfare, the inner city combat would be nightmarish and not probably would not go well for the Russians, um, given how they've been preparing for it. On that point, you know, the, the Russian tanks, you know, and the Russian armor and Russian trucks, they've got, they, they can't stand up to the sophistication of these anti-tank missiles they've been getting from the Americans and from the British and from the, the you know, the Swedes. I mean, the, and the Germans as well. They've all been piling in these armor piercing, um, you know, weaponry, which basically the Russians have got no answer for. And they're just sitting ducks on the road. And I, I went to one of these, these columns that was attacked by, they were javelin missiles because all the, bo- the empty boxes were on the side of the road. And uh, it's just you know, twisted, contorted masses that these columns have been t- turned into. Armoured vehicles turned into like twisted pieces of metal you could hardly recognise. I mean, it's just the power of these weapons is just, I mean, it's incredible compared to the armour that they're, they're fighting against. They're, 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 there's a real mismatch at the moment, I think, in military terms between between armour and armour-defeating weapons. And, and you can see that very clearly on bridges and armoured columns that have been destroyed around the Ukrainian capital. I still find it amazing that all of these years later, after World War II, we're still in these kind of like primitive armored battles that just come down to people firing at each other and ambushing and old school. I mean, this looks like uh, it, it is, it's, it's not that different from World War II. And it's sort of shocking and, and depressing, frankly, that, you know, that we are still 
in a in a world in which wars like this are being fought. But um, that's an aside. I thought wars were going to be fought in cyberspace in the 21st century, right? But apparently not. Or something, right? I mean, I know there are drones flying around and there are, you know, weaponized drones doing work and there's other kinds of weapons available. People talk about, have you seen the the propaganda going around in the US and elsewhere that the Ukraine was somehow developing bioweapons of some kind and the US was involved? Have you, you know, tell me about what people are saying about that uh, from in, in your world. You know, I mean, I, I saw that propaganda, obviously, and I saw the, the denials of it. I, I never investigated it myself because it just seems so outlandish that America would be involved in you know, helping Ukraine develop biological weapons. It just doesn't make, doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, to do what with? I mean, again, it's, it's like, it's like, the, it's like the, the, the Kremlin line that, you know, the government of Ukraine is run by Nazis, you know, and that's why they're fighting, fighting to overthrow them, even though... You know, Zelensky is the country's first Jewish president, for instance. It, it, it just, it's, you know, it's like getting into an argument with a mad person, you know, you, you, it's, it's not advisable because you can't win the argument. If you, if you say, no, they're not, there aren't, you know, chemical labs there, you know, because that's ridiculous and there's no evidence for it whatsoever. They'll go, oh, you see, you've really drunk the Western Kool-Aid, haven't you? Uh, and it's, just, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, 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 look, I mean, I try to, I try to limit the, uh, yeah, but I'm aware of the conversation that it, that is going on about it. It's just I've not seen any evidence for it at all, and, and you know, until I do, then I'm I'm not prepared really to take it seriously. But I mean, I'm open. Right. Well, give me some evidence. That'd be great. I'd love to see it. Be great. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you know, it's being um, propagated by uh, uh, right wing domestic politicians and in, in media outlets here. But um, but to me, it speaks to the idea of a kind of desperation among the populist right. And I'm sure this is maybe there's some of this uh, in England, but the the populist right has been uh, at war on a domestic front, trying to get its different aims and policies happening. And now this larger global event, seismic global event, is altering all of their focuses, and they can't get attention suddenly, and they have to throw out even crazier and crazier stuff to grab attention in headlines. I, 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 I'm not, I don't know much about American politics, I'll be honest with you, but I mean, I'm aware of the divisions that, that have existed and have got deeper over the past several years. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of those events, isn't it, that people on both sides of the aisle can agree on. You know, we talked about how democracy is is something that has to be fought for. You know, you're seeing this country sort of standing up bravely for its freedom. I mean, I think, you know, even the most, you know, rabid right wing or or left wing political activist in, in the United States is going to struggle to get much traction on the idea that Ukraine isn't doing exactly the right thing and the West isn't doing exactly the right thing to support Ukraine. So I'd like I'd I'd like right. to see that that argument made successfully. I think it's a it's a losing argument, unfortunately. No matter who makes it, I think mm-hmm. I agree with you 100. Um, percent Something you said uh, you gave an interview to your own outlet CNN uh, about when you came home to London from Ukraine, uh, and it was sort of the end of the article. You know, you were talking about how you don't know when this is going to end, and you said I don't think it'll ever end. And there is a level at which it can probably seem like there's no end game, right, to what Putin has done and where this is going. Tell me about that. War is unpredictable. We know this. And of course, Putin has threatened nuclear, you know, he's rattled the saber in a way that's frightening. 
most people would assume that that isn't really going to happen, but you wouldn't want to assume anything at this point, right? Do you want to talk about that a minute? If, I mean, do you, if you don't think it will end or will it just end badly and for whom? I mean, part of what I, part of what I meant was, is that I didn't see how this was going to end. You know, I, I don't see what the end game is because Putin could, he could escalate. Um, he's threatened to escalate. There's been speculation about a nuclear escalation. He's got tactical nuclear weapons, of course, which would, which would be a, a huge step if he decided to deploy them. And there's a possibility he could. You know, there's also talk about perhaps this conflict expands and brings in other countries, and, and that would be a, obviously a potentially devastating as well and disastrous. So th- in that sense, I don't know. We don't know yet how it will end. None of us do. But, I mean, the other point I was trying to make, I think, the other thing that, that occurs to me is that thing, these things never end. You know, the, the, you know we are always mm-hmm. constant. We, we, you know, what came before has led to this, and this will lead to what comes next. And so I, I, yeah. this story isn't going away. I mean, the, the whole story of Russia and about its confrontation with the West, whether that gets worse or whether it eases off, is something that we're, we're all going to be covering and our children are going to be covering. You know, that's not going anywhere. It's, I mean, I'm not saying it's not going anywhere. Yeah. It's, not, it's not going to stop. The world doesn't stop. Hopefully the world doesn't stop. <laughs> and that's what we're hoping and praying. Let me ask you one last question. Was it sad for you not to be able to go back to Moscow? Well, I haven't decided I'm not going back to Moscow yet. I mean, I was already out of Moscow for a bit, covering in Ukraine, and I'm actually in London now, where I've, you know, I've got I've got family, and so that's fine. And um, we're still taking a view on the legislation that's been passed in in Russia, which could have consequences for the kind of journalism that we do there. You know, we're still assessing what what we're going to do longer term. You know, so am I sad? No, I'm not, I'm not sad about it. No, I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to go back and sort of spend 15 years in a gulag. You know, uh, uh, but uh, but you know, you know, I've, my my life for the past seven or eight years is there, and so um, yeah, I mean, I would I would like to I would like to uh, at least get the opportunity to pick up the pieces of that a little bit. But um, you know, also I'm not. You know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, we haven't reached a determination on that yet. Yeah, and so bring me up to date for a second on that. Is CNN still operating in Moscow, and are you able to report from there still, or has that all been shut down? Um, no, well, we still have an office there, of course, and we have local staff there that are manning that office. Um, but we don't have any reporters there at the moment. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the only reporter that's based there. And of course, I've, I've been in Ukraine. And as I say, we haven't made a final determination yet about what, what we're going to do. I mean, look, part of it is to try and get some clarity on where this new legislation that the Russians have passed leaves us, because you know, it appears to outlaw journalism. And if you know, we decide, you know, like the lawyers decide that it does outlaw journalism, then we can't possibly report from there, you know, but we're, you know, we'll see, we'll see what determination is, is reached by the sort of legal minds that are focusing on this, our learned colleagues, as they say. Mm. Wow. And the world changes so quickly, you know, eight years in Moscow covering all of this and then, you know, flip of a switch, there's a war and possibly no more journalism in the place you've been operating from. It's remarkable. Yeah. Matthew Chance, thank you so much for coming on this program and giving us a feel for what you've been seeing and experiencing. You've been right at the front lines of this. You're very brave men, and uh, we hope you get uh, all the rest you need and deserve. And do you plan on going back? 
Back to Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, when the right opportunity emerges, I'm, I'm looking at it now and I'm going to see if I can um, reinsert myself back into that as soon as possible. Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah, of course. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much, Joe. And that's our show this week. I'd like to thank Matthew Chance for coming on to talk to us about what's going on in Ukraine. Thanks to my co-host, Emily Jane Fox, my producer, Brett Fuchs, and the people Cadence 13 who helped make this happen. Please hit subscribe, come back next week, support our sponsors the way they support this program. And we'll see you next week. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.